Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review the Katie Helper Show on iTunes. And also please become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. This episode this week is really jam-packed with great stuff. First, I interview Mondaire Jones, who won his primary in New York's 17th district. Then Nando Villa and I talk about corporate Dems and how much they suck. Then I play an interview I did with Chase Boudin, the San Francisco DA, the decarceral San Francisco DA. And before I play my interview with Chesa, I give you a sneak peek look at our Patreon-only episode for this week, which is an interview with Ali Abunima, who goes over the hypocrites who signed a notorious Harper's letter, followed by a debate between Ali Abunima and letter signer and historian and friend of the show, Matt Karp. We are live. We are live. I like this. It's a five, four, four three, three. And we're live at the Katie Halper Show, and I'm Katie Halper, and this is my um, co-host, my Cervantes, yeah. my Cervantes. There you go. You know, Cervantes was a slave. I know that, and he got ripped down. Yeah. We'll talk Even about that he soon. he was a slave. I know. It's Lost a- his hand in the Battle of Lepanto, which is oh, the largest wow. naval... Really? engagement yeah that's why they call him el manco de lepanto hold on one second uh, this is did i say your name yet no nando villa okay hey, nando villa now please yeah. hey thank you so much uh please continue with this i'm on the edge of my this, seat there's this this mansplain of cervantes <laughs> yeah Spanish, um, you're it's okay you're gringo gringos gringa explaining me yeah 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 yeah. So everyone knows Cervantes. he wrote don quixote the guy who wrote don quixote was a slave uh for many years he was captured by, he was basically in the Navy and he was captured by Barbary pirates and was a slave in North Africa and uh, for many years. And then he ended up fighting in a battle called the Battle of Lepanto, which was between basically between Spain and the Ottoman Empire. And it was the largest naval engagement in human history. And he lost his hand in that battle. And then he wrote Don Quixote. By the way, I didn't even announce who our guests are today. We got... Two, at least, at least two guests. One of them is Mondaire Jones, uh, who won his primary yeah. for uh, New York's District 17. Please say that. I'm so bad at remembering the the, the districts. Yes. Oop. Oh, we got our guests. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> nice. All right. Are you guys ready to welcome yeah. our first guest? Yes. All right. Here we go. Hello. What up? How are you? Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Great. And this is my co-host, Nando Villa. Hey, How's it going? Congratulations. Thank you. Thank uh, you. People always ask you about why you ran, right? But I, I actually want to start with a different question, which was, um, it was really moving watching your victory speech or like your almost sure victory speech, unofficial victory, I guess, speech, um, that you cited uh, Bayard Rustin. And of course, the historic nature of this campaign is not lost on me. Growing up poor, black, and gay, I never imagined that somebody like me could run for Congress again, let alone be a leading contender for the nomination in the great New York 17th Congressional District. Had I been able to look to someone quite like myself, it would have been direct evidence of the fact that things really do get better later in life. And so this 
is for Barbara Jordan. That powerful voice in the United States House of Representatives who could not live an authentic life. This is for Bayard Rustin, the architect of the March on Washington, who could not publicly be associated with Martin Luther King because of the scandal of who he loved. Bayard Rustin, underrated. Very underrated, yes. Very um, underrated. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm curious how you even, like, what his legacy means for you and how how long you've known about him because i feel like a lot of people didn't know about him until they were older or never had found out but it, it took a an african-american history class in college for me to learn about bayard rustin and you know he's he's this just tremendous figure in the civil rights movement who as i mentioned the night of uh what i'll now call my victory i mean i'm, I'm at a point where i'm, I'm ready to, to declare I, I see it happening in a few days uh, because i've been i've been observing the counting of these absentee ballots, and uh, we are at least maintaining our lead uh, that we saw in the in-person voting. So. Um, but in any event, so he's the architect of the March on Washington, and the guy can't even really take ownership of that publicly, can't publicly really participate in the event uh, because he's gay. And Martin Luther King, you know, it's, it's at a time when society is not accepting of people who are gay. And despite the fact that so many luminaries were, you know, when you, when you, when you look at uh, the, the, the movement for civil rights in this country, especially for black people, uh, when you look at so many of the participants in the Harlem Renaissance, so many of your favorite writers and authors and anyway, yeah. anyway yeah. you know, and so they could not, Barbara Jordan could not live a, a life as an openly gay black woman, this, this powerful voice in the House of Representatives who we had to find out in her obituary had lived with a woman for 20 years. So uh, it's been a long time coming, and I'm really proud to be making history in the process of running for Congress. Um, and what uh, did inspire you to run? Yeah, because it, it must suck. <laughs> what? Must, must, what must suck? Running for run? yeah. politics stuff. You know, um, when you are running to represent a community that means a lot to you, uh, and when you recognize how high the stakes are, uh, it, it is it's it is a joy, and and also it's not really tiring because you're just full of all this adrenaline. Like I'm still not tired. Uh, mm. You're running, and I was running longer than most of the people in my race because I dared to challenge the chair of the House Appropriations Committee on Monday, July eighth, right before it, three months later it became an open seat, and everyone who had ever aspired to elected office moved back, uh, largely to Chappaqua. It turns out uh, to to, to, right. throw, to throw their hat in the ring. Uh, and, and so it's, it's been it's been an incredible journey, one that I really appreciate. I was running for Congress and continue to run for Congress now as the presumptive Democratic nominee, because I think that we've got some really big challenges in this country and we need structural changes in our society, including in our economy and our health care system. Uh, and in and, and the way that we fund public schools and, and I, you know, I happen to be a proponent of tuition free public colleges and universities so that we don't take on crippling student debt as young people mm -hmm. in the society. Um, and so we need, we need big structural solutions to meet those challenges. And for me, this is all very personal. I grew up in Section 8 housing and on food stamps. My young single mom still had to work multiple jobs just to put food on the table for us. So when we talk about things like a $15 minimum wage, I mean, that, that's something I know to be a need for my firsthand experience. And of course, she got help raising me from my grandparents. My grandfather was a janitor. And my grandmother cleaned homes and her daycare was too expensive. She took me to work with her. 
Uh-uh. And so when we talk about the need for universal childcare in this country, that is a fight that I want to join when I get to Washington. Because I don't mm. get to have to go through what I went through when I was growing up. Yeah. yeah. Um, you come from a progressive, political, politicized family. Uh, was that your own journey? You know, I don't. I don't come from a political family. Period. Yeah, I'm grateful to my grandfather for for getting me involved in the NAACP, but that was really the extent. We weren't members. Mm. You know, he wasn't on a do- the local Democratic committee right. or anything like that. Um, and and so for me, it was it was it was the activism as a member of the NAACP as a young person, and and also I think feeling a sense of urgency about any number of issues uh, impacting my generation that maybe people who are have been on you know, on this planet for a longer time, you know, can't quite relate to, right? Whether it's the student debt crisis or climate catastrophe, which is, which, you know, dealing with that is my number one priority because I actually have a stake in the, in the future of the planet, I think wow. is probably why I care more about it than some other people in Congress. Uh, and, and, you know, healthcare, healthcare is something that I think is a human right, especially in the richest nation in the history of the world. And, and, and I don't just, I don't just say that to be saying it. I actually support Medicare for all. I'm like, uh, the other people in my crowded Democratic primary, and unlike, unfortunately, you know, people right now who are running for higher office than that. So, uh, we we need to be encouraging people as well to move uh, to catch up with public opinion because now a majority of the American people support Medicare for all. Right, and so your were your parent uh, was your family an activist family? Did they talk about uh, racism, civil rights? My grandparents were from. Jim Crow, Virginia, right? right? They moved when they when they were of age. They moved up to New York. You know, my grandfather. I vividly remember telling me a story of how when he was walking to school in the South, because he had to walk a dirt path as white children rode by in a school bus, they would spit on him through the window. Uh, and and so you know, he, he shared stories like that and other stories. So did my grandmother of, of discrimination. And so uh, we always cared about racial injustice. And in this country, and we knew that it was a problem. You know, it's our lived experiences and nothing else. And you know, and he, you know, he was an active member of the NAACP, the local NAACP chapter. Shout out to the Spring Valley NAACP. Um, I became involved in the youth council and reactivated the youth council. And um, and the rest is really, really history. I mean, we've we we are you know a, a conscious family. I'll say right. My yeah. dad was actually more liberal. And my mom, which which tends not to be the case in our uh-huh. politics, you know, women tend to be more progressive than men on average. Right. Um, but you know, it, it's a uh, you know, and but of course, I didn't grow up with my dad, so you know, it's yeah. only in my adulthood that I've had to recon- that I've reconnected. With. Um, you, I also heard you share a story about how you uh, something that helped you come out was um, was music and um, a show, the show Noah's Ark. Yes. And I got to say, I on this show and a lot of the people that I, you know, I, I talk to politically, we spend a lot of time like challenging the way that representation is is used to is used to um, as a cudgel to actually stop like progressive policies and politics that actually empower everyone and disproportionately empower LGBTQ people, people of color. So I have to say this sounds, it's kind of, maybe this sounds like su- silly, but it was, a, it was like, oh yeah, this is why. And I've always said representation is important. Like representation is important. You just can't stop there. Right. You can't use that. But it was really moving. Like, can you tell me uh, what, 
what that process was like, like what it was that how it helped out. If this is not too personal a question. No, it's not too personal. You can ask me literally anything. Um, yeah. And I, th I think we need more transparency in our elected officials and people vying for that for those seats. Um, let me start by saying that I agree with you. I do think it's used as a cudgel. And just today, I was uh, I was complaining about how, you know, so many so many of the people saying that we need to vote for someone, you know, who who, who looks a certain, you know, who looks a certain way, right? So so many. I'll just say, it, so many of the black people who I see in office right now do not represent me as well as some of the white people who I would support in an election who are, who are championing, you know, substantive policies that would actually improve the lives of black Americans, LGBTQ plus Americans like myself. Uh, and of course the American people writ large, you know, Bernie Sanders called me a few days ago. That was that was an amen. And 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 I was grateful to have that conversation with him. And what I said to him was, Senator Sanders, people were hurting. Young people in particular were hurting over the results of the presidential primary on the Democratic side. But I am enormously grateful to them for channeling that energy, that hurt, that pain into down ballot races like mine to build a bench of progressive leaders who can continue the movement of making sure that everybody in this country can live in dignity. And so for me, to your point, it cannot be the end of the analysis, uh, you know, just to get, uh, you know, a person of color or a woman or a member of the LGBTQ plus community in office. Having said that, there is power in representation. My goodness, uh, you've probably heard this if you, if you listen to some of the things that I've said before, but growing up poor, black and gay, I never imagined that someone like myself could run for United States Congress, let alone win such a seat. And for the vast majority of my life, I thought, including as recently as five years ago, <laughs> I did not think that I could run for office as an openly gay candidate. And so for that reason, you know, planned on not doing such a thing. Mm. I didn't think that society would be accepting of me. I would, I would have to always hide who I was, which I was unwilling to do as well. Right. Uh, and it's just it's wild to me now that I'm one of the most openly gay people in America and politics. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and look, it's, it's, it's pretty cool in, in the sense that I get so many messages that energize me uh, and that remind me of why I'm doing this, uh, you know, from from people young and old who are queer. Many of them are queer people of color who are saying you have helped me uh, come to terms with my own identity, live an authentic life. And, and you know what? I'll take it. You know, in a world where LGBTQ youth disproportionately uh, experience thoughts of suicide, uh, I, I will gladly run to inspire people to be who they are. Now, of course, that's not why I'm running. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a wonderful byproduct of it. Right. I'm running to be a champion for the working people in my district, uh, recognizing that government has never worked for everyone; it's only ever worked for a subset of the American people. But, but, you know, to your point, yes, you know, seeing Noah's Ark, seeing openly gay black men for the first time in loving relationships, which I had never seen before, helped me to come out at the age of 24 years old. Uh, and, and of course, you know, Frank Ocean around that time, you know, yeah. released Channel Orange, right? And it was a big thing when he acknowledged that a number of those songs had been written to another man. And so it, and it was a huge thing because Frank Ocean was like, it was a big deal and, you know, still yeah. should be considered a big deal.
yeah. yeah. Still album. around. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's 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 a really powerful thing. Um, I have more questions, but Nando, do you have any questions? I want to give you a chance if you do. Um, yeah. No. Just I I I always I always kind of wonder like about this because it just it seemed it's such a leap right to take to go from being a private citizen to being a public person um just what has that process been like for you to sort of take you know jump into the ring so to speak and and all of a sudden you have scrutiny on your life in a way that you just probably didn't have in the past i i will tell you i've gotten used to it um you know last september there was an article that came out in city and state whose headline was the uh, the gay black Harvard grad running uh, against Lita Lowe. And it was the first time that anyone had written about my sexuality. Um, and, you know, it wasn't something I was trying to hide from people, but, you know, I, I wasn't going up in, in my Baptist church talking about how I was gay, right? It just you know, didn't seem, first of all, not really relevant. And also probably wouldn't go over too well as a topic of conversation in that context. And so, I did think to myself, wow, but how are people, you know, people I've never directly had a conversation with about this, how are they going to proceed with that? Um, and of course, I wouldn't have it any other way, uh, but but there was a, a slight nervousness there. But of course, everyone supported me anyway, including religious leaders. Uh, and so I'm just really, really grateful for, uh, for this journey, for this journey, really grateful. And what advice do you have? I mean, for I, I know you said that you know you're running to represent your constituents, and and at the same time, a great byproduct of of your candidacy um, is a, being able to be a voice and inspire people. Um, and you mentioned the disproportionate suicide um, among the LGBTQ uh, community. So, uh, is there anything you want to say to people who are watching or listening? Yes, yes, you can do it. You can run. It can. It shouldn't be me and Richie Torres as the last openly gay, as the first and the last openly right. gay black people in Congress. Uh, if you are queer, uh, if you are a person of color, if you are a young person, if you don't come from money or from a political family in the way that I don't come from money or from a political family, you too can run for uh, local, you know, state or federal office and be successful, even when uh, people are underestimating you, right? even when local democratic committees or whatever your party is, uh, even when local uh, political committees are telling you that you have no shot, it starts by stepping out on faith and surrounding yourself with people who are going to give you great advice and be supportive of you and encourage you. And of course, have a good reason to run. Uh, and, and, if, and if politics is not your thing, uh, then, then, then do something else to help your community. Uh, but know that there is a space for you and that you will be accepted even when you don't quite fully see it in the beginning it happens over time because part of a, a huge part of this is showing people that you're that you're serious and that and that you're the real deal uh, and oftentimes that's a lonely process in the beginning. but before you know it you have an entire movement of people behind you um this is the article by the way that you mentioned yeah. um yeah what are you most afraid of if, before heading to, like, assuming you, you do head to Washington? Like, what's the, what's the scariest thing? When you thing? head there. Yeah, when you head, when you head there. When I head to Washington, I'm, I am most afraid 
of not doing enough to save the world from from climate catastrophe. That's a big one. Um, I am I am so worried that people in Washington still don't understand the scale of this crisis and how little time we have left to decarbonize our economy so that we can ensure a livable future uh, for our generation and for the for the people who come after us. That what what uh, distinguishes you from your can the the people you're running against today? You tweeted that you're for Medicare for all, and and you mentioned that. Any other policies that you want to point out? The biggest thing that distinguishes me is that I won the Democratic primary, and the other people lost. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reminder. Yeah. 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 Um, but you know, yes, I, I was the only candidate in a crowded race supporting Medicare for all, which incidentally is what my outgoing member of Congress supports. Uh, and so it's wild to me, especially in the midst of a global pandemic where 40 million people lost their health insurance, excuse me, lost their jobs over the course of a 10 week period, uh, that we would that we would still be, um, you know, opposed to the one policy that would actually ensure that everyone has health care. Uh, and, and so I'm really grateful for the people of this district. Democrats are rallying behind me and, and, and giving me, I think, a really good margin of victory to, to show a mandate. You, I'm looking for this really great tweet you had that it was like, oh, I know what it was. It was that couple, um, that scary couple, uh, th that scary couple in St. Louis who the husband was just trying to protect his wife, apparently, which is why I guess uh, the wife came out with him. I mean, that's just a minor detail. But if you're trying to protect your wife, leave her in the home. Don't have her come out guns, <laughs> guns blazing. It was, it, um, was a, it was a total, you know, it was a total. Yeah, it was really ridiculous. And did, I don't know if you saw that they then, this is kind of genius. They had a statement like of solidarity with Black Lives Matter. It was such good damage control. Oh, did they? Yeah, they were like, the time. it's long overdue. It was so funny. Uh, yeah, these are the guys, in case people missed it, they pulled their guns on, on protesters who were not violent, unarmed, who were on their way, by the way, to protest and demand the resignation of the mayor because she literally doxed her own constituents who opposed who wanted to reinvest from the from police departments. Yeah. Um, and so this is a, so Mondaire, you tweeted big pharma when we regulate the cost of prescription drugs next year, next year. And you have the image of yeah. that, that couple. It's a great image. Absolutely. I mean, we have to get the skyrocketing, the skyrocketing cost of prescription drugs under control. And one other tidbit of information about these people is that they own a very successful law firm in the area. In St. Louis, right? And so that was part well, of where do you think he buys those pink polos? You know, <laughs> you know, you don't buy the pink polos without the big law firm money and the military style assault weapons, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> black black people could never get away with this. Okay, like they would have been shot down instantly. Well, the funny thing also is that he doesn't even know how to hold it. Like it's just so pathetic all around. Like I mean, that's the funniest. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. He like just no zero training. You know, he has that thing to make himself feel better, but zero, absolutely zero training. It's just so painfully obvious. How, how do you, I guess, plan on on shaming or moving your, your uh, code, your, the Democrats who are not being as progressive as they could be or should be? How do you do that? How do you handle that, walk that line? Because I saw, for instance, the Congressional Black Caucus did endorse you, um, but they did not endorse another progressive black candidate who they did not endorse, who won anyway, was uh, Jamal Bowman. So, and you did get the endorsement. Like, how do you walk that line of working with people, but also 
kind of asking them to do better. Like they should have endorsed him and not Elliot Engel. I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't think that I would get endorsed. Right. Right. It was a few days. It was a few days before the primary. Uh, you know, I was. I was. I had started out my race as 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 I mentioned already, uh, challenging the chair of the House Appropriations Committee. So sort of start off my race in the way that Jamal Bowman did uh, in his respective race, uh, one district south of mine in New York's 16th congressional district. And you know, I mean, the the people in Congress don't like it when when you're when you align yourself with. Um, people who are willing to challenge incumbents right um, and and um and you know so there's 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 some tension there but I, I think it's it's really making sure that your colleagues know that you have respect for them even as you disagree with them uh and look if people are you know it, it all districts are different right um so there's some things that i can talk about that maybe someone in kansas somewhere in kansas I'm grateful to be running in a, in a safely democratic district. Uh, but Katie Porter will tell you, Katie Porter, who flipped the seat from Red to Blue in Southern California, yeah. won her race on Medicare for all. Right, right. And, 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 I, and I love that she tells that story. Uh, likewise, in my affluent district, right, Westchester and Rockland County comprise this district, or parts of Westchester, uh, and it is the 19th most affluent congressional district in the U.S., and people were like, "You're just too liberal for this district." Total BS, right? I'm in right. with the things that well, many of the, some of the things anyway that my member of Congress has also stands for, and it was the other people who were more conservative uh, than, than than she was than she is on these issues. And so, you know, just just making sure that we can disagree respectfully, but but still like be a person who speaks with moral clarity. Right. right. Like, I don't have a problem pissing off other Democrats. When okay. I don't have a problem. We love to do that on the Katie yeah. Halber show. Yeah. Feel free to call anyone out or call them in. You can call <laughs> yeah. them in too. You know, but, but I also, I also recognize that relationships matter. And, and so I, I again, I want to, I want to have good relationships. Uh, but my, my, my duty is to the people I'm running to represent. And I will always put them over someone else's ego or, or, um, you know, desire to rise in leadership. <laughs> yeah. Um, someone asked um, if you'd vote to withdraw, if you'd back withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. Uh, yes, I would. Yes. That's the good answer. Oh, we yeah. were just talking about that before you came on. Were you cheating? Like, is cheating on the test, you know? <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Um, Kyle Kalinsky will be your constituent next year. Okay. Nice. Um, did, you, get a did you vote for me, Kyle? Kyle, where are you? I don't know if Kyle's wa well. The first problem is is Kyle watching, and if not, he's canceled. And then if he didn't vote for you, he's double canceled. Double canceled. Yeah, double canceled. Yeah. What about the presidential uh, race? Are you? Uh, how are you feeling about that? We we have to elect President Joe Biden, right? I mean, it, it, there's Donald Trump's reelection bid poses an existential threat to us. He is an existential threat to our national security. Uh, he's an existential threat to this economy for, you know, for families like the one I grew up in. Uh, he is an existential threat to everyone's civil rights and civil liberties. And so, you know, to, to me, the choice is clear, uh, even as I plan to push him to the left on any number of issues as a member of Congress in January of 2021. Uh, but 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 there is no question that we have to elect him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that like the Dems, I, it's funny, I was I was talking about this with someone, I was like, do we have to pretend, like, do, should people say that they're not going to vote? I know that people are going to say they are, but like, there's no, we ha how are we going to find our leverage? I think, I think 
you're already seeing that we have leverage in these Unity Task Force, right? So today uh, we saw that, uh, you know, mem members of that panel, I think I think there were eight, eight members or six members of the panel, including AOC, John Kerry, uh, the leader of the Sunrise Movement organization, uh, you know, release goals that weren't every single thing that progressives wanted, but really did significantly push Joe Biden's policies to leftward. Uh, and we have to keep doing that because I looked at that and, and again, it's not perfect. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't thrilled by it, but uh, it is a dramatic improvement upon what he was campaigning on in terms of, I think, 100 uh, percent clean electricity by 2035, I believe. And I think um, uh, by 2030 uh, and, and uh, green, you know, all, all units that are built moving forward would, would be green and sustainable. So that that's exciting. You know, I say that as someone who supports AOC's Green New Deal in public housing. Right. Um, did you see uh, Deborah Messing get into it with uh, with Nina Turner? I don't know if you saw that. I saw a little bit of it, but I don't have the full content. Okay, yeah, I will. I will. I'll, I'll talk about it after. Don't get him in trouble, Katie. Come you're on. right. You're right. I won't. No, Nina Turner. I mean, Nina's great. Nina Turner's She's, great. No, I won't. of course, Nina Turner's great. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Not I don't worth want to, I won't, weighing I won't, in on a Twitter yeah, fight. Yeah, yeah, it's not. Yeah, the issue is. I'll, I'll just say the issue. You don't have to comment on that. I won't. I'm not. But there's a there the. the what was at the subject of the debate was whether or not the black uh, vote is owed to Democrats. And uh, it was an interesting, it was an interesting discussion, but it does feel, yeah. What do you, th do you have a sense that some Democrats take that vote for granted? Absolutely. I do. I, I absolutely think that Democrats take uh, the support of black people for granted. I think that if they, if they did not take the support of black people for granted, you would see, more candidates, including people out who, was who were just running against me, talk about racial justice, uh, specifically policing reform and criminal justice reform, well before the murder of George Floyd and you know national unrest. Right. The subject you would see more people support Medicare for all. Right. Which you know right now we live in a healthcare system that conditions your ability to get necessary medical care on your ability to pay for it, which disproportionately harms Black and Hispanic people. Uh, we are in an economic system that concentrates 90% of this country's wealth in white communities and only 5% in black and Hispanic communities. And we, we largely fund our public schools through, proper, through a property tax-based system that results in the concentration of tens of billions of dollars in white communities and the deprivation of black and brown kids in critical education opportunities. So, uh, But too many Democrats, in fact, most Democrats, don't talk about those kinds of things. Right not on the scale that would actually materially improve the lives of people. Uh, and so I do think that we're taken for granted and I'm fighting to change that. And I'm grateful to be in a district like this and define expectations that we can be successful. And what do you think should be done about police reform? We need national standards in policing. Uh, people should have to identify themselves and practice de-escalation. That we should have independent offices conducting investigations and prosecuting, if necessary, police officers when there have been uh, killings and, and, and other inappropriate actions. Uh, we have to make sure that we end qualified immunity. You know, this this doctrine that the Supreme Court created and that no one asked for, but that allows police officers to evade responsibility even when it's clear they violated the constitutional rights of civilians. Uh, but we have to go well beyond that, right? We have to min we have to end mass incarceration as we know it. We have to invest in alternatives to incarceration. Uh, let me go back and say that we need to, uh, you know, talk about defunding the police and, and you know, cutting that funding and reallocating it to social workers and youth and youth employment. You know, a lot what we're dealing with right now in one in one part of my district in Peekskill, for example, 
we need funding for summer youth employment. Um, you know, because we, we know that these things, again, quality public schools, social workers, uh, health care, these are things that we know improve the quality of life of people and improve public safety without, the, without requiring the policing of black and brown bodies. Um, but on, on, on back to the, the, the criminal justice reform piece, again, it's ending, um, it's ending eliminating mandatory minimums. It's fully funding the right to counsel. You got, you got too many public defenders who have hundreds, if not thousands of cases uh, who, that are preventing them from giving adequate attention to each of the people they represent. You have to make sure that we abolish private prisons, that we legalize cannabis, uh, and, and that we, um, we, make it, we eliminate all the barriers to reentering society after you have uh, done your time, so to speak, right? So uh, banning the box, for example, Right now, there's there's a rule that says you can't get federally subsidized housing if you have a conviction, which is total BS, right? These things yeah. are meant to send people back to prison and jail. Yeah. Um, and, and do you think, um, it seems like people really like to, and I'm sure, I know you have to go soon. Uh, I'll ask my last last question. Uh, Anandra, do you have one? No, 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 go ahead. Okay. Um, it, it seems like people really do like to present kind of economic justice and racial justice issues as separate and mutually exclusive. Um, and what, what's your response to that? I think, I think the race, the racial and class inequality that we see in this country are inextricably linked. Uh, you know, this is, this is a government that deprived African-Americans for generations. Well, in fact, for, for, for most of the existence of the black community in this country uh, of, of, of wealth, you know, whether it's through redlining, through denying employment opportunities. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, obviously there's poverty in the white community. Yeah. Um, but, 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 but when we look at, 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 at poverty in the aggregate and, and other forms of inequality, I mean, these, these are things that are oftentimes state-sponsored or, or at least encouraged by states, local governments, and the federal government. Uh, and so I, I, you can't really address poverty. And let me also say uh, that even, you know, as, as someone who there, there have been studies that show that no matter how wealthy you are, like you still are going to be discriminated against based on being black or Hispanic in this country, uh, whether it's job opportunities, even even, even the, the, the fragility of, of wealth um, and, and all the resources that people are, are sort of oftentimes used to to support you. Uh, you know, being able to pay for college and getting money from your parents um, and getting the money to, to invest in a home uh, and, of course, applying for jobs. Hell, interacting with police officers on the street who don't care how much money you have if you, you know, if you're black oftentimes. These are things that, that are, are, if you are a person of color, you're still going to be discriminated against. because. Of and what about, how do we uh, also reach out to poor white voters. I mean, I don't know how much that exists in your district. It is, it is a district that is um, 60% non-Hispanic white, about 20% Latinx, about 12% black, and about 8% Asian Pacific Islander. Uh, it is what I describe as a tale of two cities, right? The average right. household income is about $100,000, uh, but we have pockets of deep poverty and and for the 200,000 households in my district defined as housing burden, meaning they pay, they pay more than 30% of their monthly income towards rent. Wow. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, I, I, it's, it's running 
on a message of inclusion. But here's the thing, as Charles Booker also said today, and I wish he had won that primary. He didn't come on the, I mean, just saying he didn't come on the Katie yeah. Albert show. Sure. I invite him on. Could have been a game changer. I, he didn't deny me. We just didn't, didn't happen. Yeah, he didn't diss me. You know, people of color and white people alike know that this government has never worked for everybody. It's only ever worked for the super rich and the well-connected. Yeah. And and so, you know, you start start, start there. Start, start with the, the kinds of policies that would improve their lives. I talk about property taxes being too high in my district. I, I talk, well, well, specifically, actually, I talk about how we need to lift that $10,000 cap on assault deduction. Uh, I noticed that Katie Porter talks about that in her um in, in, in her district as well, which is a similar district to mine. Um, you know, so there, there are some suburban concerns that, that, that maybe other people don't have in, in different parts of the country. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, on, on the big stuff, healthcare for everyone, affordable housing, uh, saving the planet from climate catastrophe. These are things that are largely popular with the American people. Yeah. Um, and any, in terms of messaging, um, I, I feel like maybe this is a, a Twitter phenomenon, but I do think sometimes the Dems, they don't know because they run away from class stuff. They don't know how to talk to, and they have their like pit, you know, they have their, their, they kind of market niche market and, um, offer a lot of lip service, but, um, they don't necessarily do it around class. So I think that there's this narrative that like, you can't talk about class because because people are racist, but I think that that's the only way you can, one of the only ways you can mitigate racism is if you talk about class and organize around class so that people who uh, maybe are looking to be part of something instead of being part of some racist uh, community, they can be part of a community that's that's a class-based community. Yeah, you know, you can talk about racial injustice and class inequality and, and, and economic oppression at the same time. Um, I, I think it would be a disservice not to also talk about the need for racial justice. And I've been talking about that and, and it's been received well in my district. Yeah, great. Any other, uh, anything else you want to make sure people know about you, your campaign? What's next? MondaireforCongress.com. That's M-O-N-D-A-I-R-E for Congress.com. Follow me on social media. I'm Mondaire Jones on Twitter. Yeah, uh, Mondaire for Congress on Instagram. Great, great Twitter account. You guys should definitely follow it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so Thanks much. So much. And yeah, we'd love to come back on. We'll, and good we'll good luck. And good luck, yeah. Take care. Thanks. Bye. That was great. Mondaire Jones, baby. He's great, right? Great guy. Seems yeah. great. Seems great. Good policies. Uh, I put yeah. a link uh, to him. Very, very self-assured, you know, calm. Yeah. yeah. You know, took anything, answered every question, you know, didn't like. I know. I'm really, I, I need a bad cop on this show to like, oops, to, to ask questions. I don't know. Like harder questions? Yeah, because I like, yeah, it's hard for me to do that. I'm very assertive, but um, I, I don't, I'm also kind of conflict averse. Well, you like, really know that. the thing is like. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. What kind of hard question would you ask someone like Mondaire Jones? I mean, what, yeah, like, what the hell are we going to do about Biden? How the hell are we going to move him to the left? We don't have, look, I'm O'Bernie, you know I love you. Love him. But I don't know why he gave up his, uh, his No, I, I hear you, but, like, that's not something that Mondaire Jones is going to do. Yeah, or not, right. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. Yes, yes. You're right. Like, that would be having, having 50 Mondaire Joneses in Congress would be, would help in that regard, I think. You know what I mean? 
So, um, yeah, I, I just don't see like, you know, uh, this guy's running for Congress. We like want him to be in office. Like that's, you know, this, this, this sort of journalistic impulse to like be completely devoid of politics is, is just right. wrong. You know, like we want this guy to win. So why would we want to get him in trouble? Yeah, by right. anything? I need a better cop. Not yeah. I need, I need I mean, a I learned, I learned my lesson after I interviewed Bernie, you know, like, oh and I was trying to help him out. Like I didn't, you know, um, yeah. so yeah, there's no, what are we going to like? I mean, again, like liberal, right. the liberal media, the failing lion fake news media, um, they, what their idea of tough questions is something like you in 2009 were part of like this group that said this thing, like, what do you do? What do you say about that? You know? And it's like, who cares? Right. You know, like, they, you know, people always forget that the, the question that got Sarah Palin in trouble, remember like when she started talking about Alaska and all that stuff was Katie Kirk just asked her like, what do you read? You know, sometimes these simple questions like are, are better and tougher, like this sort of doing your research to 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 like catch yeah. him in something. Gotcha, you're right. I, I just always feel weird and conflicted, but you know, I have to own it. That's my thing. I'm very, I'm obviously, I like. If we were like interview, if you were interviewing near a Tandon, you would have a much different tone. You'd be like, you know, but like you don't want you know you near a Tandon is your enemy. Like Mondaire Jones is not your enemy. No, Mondaire Jones is is our representative and an ally. Right. He's an ally. Um, but yeah, he's not your enemy. Like there's so why try to like, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Someone made a good point. Like the type of question they go, like, will you call Maduro a brutal dictator? And it's like, you know what I mean? Like there's just a can't win proposition there. Yeah, I know. When people were really mad at Bernie for that, I was like, okay, guys. The Cuba stuff and, you know, no, it's but like people on the left were really mad at Bernie for for calling Maduro. He did call him a brutal a tyrant, I think, not a dictator. Um, which look, not his finest moment, but come on, guys, come on. Like like think- like as if that had anything to do with anything. Like Biden's gonna. Well, we didn't know. Oh my God, we didn't no. Biden is running to the right uh, of like, he's trying to outflank Trump on the right on Venezuela. Like he's oh, doing man. the John. Ker- he's running the John Kerry two thousand four campaign, which was like I'm actually gonna send more troops to Iraq. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so. Well, there's yeah. really exciting news, though. So yeah, I'm sorry I, I brought up the Nina Turner thing. Um, it's just so. That's why I was like, you know, like don't get him in that. You know, you're who right, cares? What do you think about that shit? That's fat. Um, yeah. That's the uh, that's the the red line for me. That's the deal breaker. What's the deal breaker? I'm kidding. Uh, you know where you fall in the Deborah messing. Oh right, yeah, that's your security uh, test. Exactly. Yeah, I wanted to to share this news with people because I think it's very exciting, um, which is that Joe Biden has enlisted. Deborah Messing, Bradley Whitford, and more stars to raise support on Instagram. The celebrities will talk to prominent Democrats for a series called Hashtag Team Joe Talks. Yeah. With rarely public engagement. Did you know about this? No. Yeah, so... Um, I don't care about this. I think it's great news. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, Brad Deborah Whitford Mess- has morphed into his character in Get Out. I know. He is He's that guy. Totally yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, but it's, yeah, it's called it's team Joe talks and, uh, they're going to get out the vote with Deborah messing. Right. Uh, the hordes of voters are going to come like Deborah messing told me to vote. Yeah. 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 Um, and, 
I don't, I hadn't seen this trigger warning, but I want to share one other thing with you guys. Um, hold on. I mean, we all know where Deborah Messing stands because she's a, a very vocal supporter of, yeah. of Biden. But I wanted to show one other thing, which is that, again, trigger warning, but it's, we should watch it. And it's good to watch this in like safe space with com community. So oh this is her endorsement um, of Biden. I'm for Biden here. Bye. I'm for Joe. I'm for Joe Biden because he's a unifier. After South Carolina, we now know that the African-American community, which has always been the heart and soul of the Democratic Party, believes and trusts Joe Biden. I'm for Joe because he has been an ally to the LGBTQ community. He has passed the Violence Against Women Act. He has the respect of the global community, and I cannot think of a more important time than now with this pandemic having someone who is a leader who can communicate with the world and work together. I'm for Joe because he has been a member of the Democratic Party his entire life. And I'm for Joe because I believe that he can unify and help us win back the Senate and keep the House. Go, Joe. God, liberals are so gross. I hate them so much. Like the 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 like fetishization of like the black voters is just the most despite like white liberals is the most disgusting thing it's so transparent they don't give shit about black people um it's like if they serve their own purposes if they play their little role you know right. they're to be exalted but as soon as one falls out of line they are to be punished for thought crime i mean it's just so disgusting and right. gross and like there there's this new push i've noticed it like in the past couple of weeks especially with like the john stewart coming back into the fray with his movie or whatever but he's like he's like i'm gonna stop making the the argument that you know we need to vote for biden because trump is bad i'm gonna start making the affirmative case for biden what and is it like, let me know when well, you what find they, well, no there is none but the what they're what they're what they're trying to say is like you know biden is a man who understands grief and that's what we need now, uh, you know, in uh, in the White House is to someone who can, knows how to grieve because of the whatever hundred thousand people that have died from coronavirus and all the other stuff. Right. So, you know, so as, as long as someone can go, mm, it's really bad, you know, like then that's and it's just like God, you guys, you libs suck. No one believes you. Like it's so yeah. transparent bullshit, you know. It's also really dangerous because like, yeah, he does know grief. He lost um, to his, his first wife um, and yes. a child. But that doesn't mean anything. Well, it doesn't mean anything, especially if you use that to block Medicare for exactly. all. Exactly. Like it doesn't mean anything. Like there's no, there's no evidence that suggests that because your wife died, you're a better politician. Like what is like, what does that have anything to do with anything? It's bullshit. It's just uh, pure bullshit. Yeah. Is what you know, it is. Like there's no. Yeah, it's actually pretty dangerous if you're going to use that to block. It's like using. It's like. Well, it's Well, also, it's just disgusting. Like it's like you're using your wife's death to to like yeah, do this uh, awful thing. It's just gross. And uh, he also, by the way, he told a story about how the man who ran into his wife's vehicle was drunk, but he wasn't. He said it like multiple times. And it just wasn't true. Well, Biden um, lies all the time about everything. It's not surprising. Yeah, Biden, Biden. What has Trump come like, up with? Like the, the, the best argument that I've heard for voting for Biden, Michael Brooks told me one time, and he was like, 
you know, on the extremely narrow point of the NLRB appointments, you know, and I was like, I could actually see that. Like, if we believe that a left movement to be viable in this country needs a revitalized labor movement, you know, the Republican Party's assault on the NLRB is just like, it just murders that from yeah, like, right. even being possible. And like, whereas like uh, a, a standard awful Dem will at least put people in the NLRB that make it somewhat right. possible to right. be like but it's so narrow and so right. small that's like the only thing that i've seen that i was because like the contra yeah, we argument empower, we have to empower, oh sorry i entered no 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 we have to empower what we have to empower the labor movement to be as terrible as it are as it is and and sell out the working class no i mean i'm i i jest but sure yeah uh i yeah well, we need a labor movement regardless. Right. So I don't know how to start it from scratch. You know, obviously the one yeah. that we got is terrible, but like, I don't know, like it just, that's, that seems like the, you know, that, that sort of that, like the opening of the window of opportunity or whatever, like it's just impossible under Trump, obviously. Um, whereas maybe with Biden, it's more, but like the- yeah, Aaron Monte was making that argument last week. Oh, was he? Of, yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh-oh. Union membership went down under Obama. Oh, I have no illusion that like uh, a, a election of Biden is going to usher in, you know, 30 percent right. union density. No illusions about that. Yeah. But there's a chance that maybe it'll stop the bleeding slash, you know, m maybe allow the sort of burgeoning union militants that that militancy that we're seeing in the last couple of years, a, a little space to breathe, you know, because like it just. It, it it just it won't under a, uh, under Trump administration. I mean, it's just again, I'm not like I'm not like saying yeah, this is something that's like super inspiring or anything like that right. because the the contra sort of nightmare scenario is that Biden gets in um, with 50 million people unemployed and then he ushers and then he oversees like this awful recovery which just pisses everyone off and leads to like a more violent right wing backlash than the right. 2008 crisis. I mean, the 2008 crisis had. The worst month of the 2008 crisis had 800,000 jobs lost. We've lost 50 million in the last two months. So crazy, yeah. We, it's, you know, it's the scale of the crisis is just unimaginable. Like we haven't, our brains are too small to process it right now. Right. You know? Yeah, there need to be visuals of that. Not even joking. There really should be. Yeah, but I didn't even know. Like I've, yeah. Can your brain even process that, 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 uh, you know, that, that, that amount of crisis, it's just, it's hard, you know, like it's really, really hard. Another uh, comment from Brian Frederick is liberals are now praising Bush and Reagan. Yeah. They yeah. love, it, there is no analogy in the Western world to the liberal obsession with their enemies. Like the, the American, American Democratic Party loves Reagan, loves yeah, Obama explicitly ran as a new Reagan. And the Clintons called him out for it, which is funny. Yeah. They were right about that one. But um, I guess the, the point is that they're not their enemy, right? That's the whole like Thomas Frank listen but, liberal thesis. No, yes, but like in in other countries where there's like an equivalent kind of you know center right party and like a center left party, like they hate each other and always it, it's like there is yeah. there's just so much more party discipline that like they don't ever say a nice thing about like ever they are mortal enemies, right? right. You know, it is unimaginable for like some pesoe guy. That's in Spain, yeah, it's like the equivalent of the Democratic Party in Spain to praise some Pepe guy, which is like the equivalent of the Republic. It's just unimaginable, like to say, like, you know, uh, not, I, didn't, I didn't agree with him on, any, on all this stuff, but he right. had a good mustache. I was going to say the same thing. I was just going to say, but it got a good mustache. 
But there is yeah, just yeah. there is no analogy in, in in the Western democracies to the Democratic Party's obsession with their rivals. Because right. you said that they're not actual rivals. No Republicans are ever praising a Democrat. That's true. Ever. Yeah, they're so total subs. The Dems. Yeah. It's you know, really, like yeah. if if the argument that they're the same, therefore they praise each other, were true, then you'd see Republicans being right, like, yeah. you know, Clinton. Uh, I didn't, you know, agree with him, but he, you know, did some things that I agree with. I don't know, whatever the fuck the the, the Democrats say about Bush and Reagan. Yeah, it's true. They're yeah. like, no, Clinton murdered fucking that guy. What's his name? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like a very effective politician and also effective murderer. They don't even, they don't, but they don't even grant him that he was an effective politician. They say yeah. he like, he like yeah. bumbled his way through it, and he lucked into it, and you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, what will the October surprise on Biden be? <laughs> he already has so many. It's just, yeah. Who knows? I mean, it's like maybe some health issue, you know, like. Oh, you saw Donald Trump challenged him to like a cognitive test or something? So funny. It's so good. <laughs> Sorry. So fucking that's funny. So funny. It's terrible. Well, that's that's like fifty percent of his appeal. Is I that know. he's like is that he he's funny. I don't know, like he's pretty funny. So we talk about should we talk about cancel culture? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, Nathan Robinson just wrote a big thing that I haven't read and I probably won't read about like how the letter is awful or whatever. And you know, there's this new kind of instinct to there's this new the new line on cancel culture from like left liberals is something like it doesn't exist it's fake and it's if good. it did exist yeah. it's actually good right you know? more power to it yeah yeah exactly and it's incredibly annoying because it, it does it doesn't pass like the, it's hard to argue against it because it's like of course there is like it's it's like one of those like things that make you insane where it's like of course there's like cancel culture and it, of course people don't are annoyed by us. it yeah, yeah don't, don't gaslight us, us. And and of course, there's like this 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 weird kind of attempt to cancel like art, you know, and that is very annoying and off putting to people. Like, you know, there was that post that went viral of like, you know, someone wrote a some like grad student or something wrote a, a review of The Shining that was like, wow, ooh, The Shining's not hold up well. It's like what, you know, shut up, just shut up. No one no one cares what you think, you know. Right. Um, we did say we were going to kind of like rewrite. Um uh weren't we going to wokeify stories the wokeify movie plots yeah or problematize them problematize no the thing that you do that's funny is you you turn you turn the lib kind of insane uh cancel instinct against them by like outwoking them you know right. outflanking them you know like yeah. joe biden started to outflank trump on the right yeah you, out, you yeah. outflank them on the woke it's like well actually actually yeah you Should saying we, yeah. that this this is actually yeah. ableist slash right. whatever right yeah the letter had the most banal kind of i know it's really and it's like if, if you want to criticize the people or the where it's coming this is my big problem it's like if you want to oh we got our next guest on you guys you right i'm so excited about this you ready for this yeah Ali Abu Nima from Electronic Intifada. Oh, hi. Hi, welcome. What's up? I'm good. I didn't know I was going straight on the air, so to speak. I can throw you off. You want me to push no, you off? I just, I just wanted to have enough time to tweet that I'm on. Be, I don't want to be the Jew who pushes you out. No, no, that's <laughs> fine. I just have to uh, tweet. I just have to retweet your tweet. Yeah. No, I do that all the time. I do that all the time. Uh, 
so take your time. Um, and this is my co-host, Nando Villa. How's Great it going? Great to meet you. Pleasure. All right, done. Retweeted. So um, we were actually just talking about the cancel culture. And um, my take is a little different from a lots of people because I think that we should um, cancel more people. Well, no, <laughs> I, I mean, I want to, I want to cancel cancelers. I'm for I'm all for that. But I do think um, that the left I mean, it's interesting because Ali, we had you on Useful Idiots. And one of the issues we spoke about was the way that Facebook was censoring uh, Palestinian journalists and Palestinian civilians and just like deactivating their accounts. Um, and I think that uh, there is a danger in cancellation and a danger in uh, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube being the like um, arbiters. Of, but that, I mean, yeah. have we established that cancellation exists? I mean, I've canceled tons of people. I block them or they're dead to me or whatever right. it is. But they're still you know, have their huge platforms. So, I mean, there's no such thing as cancellation. Like, if only we could cancel these people. You know, it's pretty clear J.K. Rowling is whining because she doesn't like being criticized for her transphobic views. But it's like the idea that she's being canceled is so ridiculous. Like, when I drive around in my car listening to the BBC World Service or whatever it is, the CBC, anything to avoid NPR, uh, there are there are literal news bulletins about J.K. Rowling's latest statement on whatever controversy she's right. involved in. Like the idea that she's being canceled or censored is just—it's just so absurd. I guess I just think that the way the left should respond to this is by. Uh... Don't go anywhere because I'm about to play my great interview with the great Jason Boudin. But just a reminder to hear the rest of my chat with Ali Abunima, as well as the debate between Ali Abunima and Matt Karp. Go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, for coming, you have some exciting news. You have a new podcast, but let's first kind of, you know, provide a context for uh, what you're doing, who you are. Um, you are, again, a DA in San Francisco, and you are decarceral, and you're part of this wave of progressive decarceral um, DAs who probably um, a couple years ago never thought that they'd go step anywhere near a prosecutor's office. Um, so tell us what has most surprised you about what you're what you've been able to do in this role. Well, you're right, Katie. I was a public defender a couple of years ago, and I was really happy being a public defender. As you know, I grew up visiting my own parents in prison, and the the work of being a public defender was work I really enjoyed. Being a trial lawyer advocating on behalf of individuals who were usually in their their worst moment in life in a crisis and trying to help them navigate that and find a way uh, <clears throat> to, to a future, to a healthier, safer future was, was work that I loved. And now I'm San Francisco's district attorney. It's a real uh, honor. It's humbling to serve the entire city and county of San Francisco. And it's a big job because we're really trying to put the justice back in the criminal justice system. We're trying to make sure that instead of using crime victims as pieces of evidence to secure convictions and send people to prison for, for lengthy terms, we're actually investing in preventing crime, in healing communities that have been harmed by crime, and in recognizing the full humanity, even of those that we prosecute 
so that they can successfully re-enter their communities and, and their families uh, once they've been held accountable. Uh, what what surprised me the most, I think, you know, I, I knew that I was in for a big challenge. I knew that the system wouldn't become a, a, a truly just system overnight, no matter who was running a particular office. Uh, but I nevertheless have been really surprised at how slow it is to implement change. And we've done a lot and there's so much more that we need to do. So what are the, some of the things that you've done? Well, I was really excited that uh, one of the first things I did, because of my own life experience, was to implement a diversion program for primary caregiver parents. And the basic idea, Katie, is we want parents to be at home with their kids, not in jail cells. We are all safer when parents are taking care of their kids. And we're all better off financially when we're investing in families and communities rather than having tax dollars go to county jails and foster parents. So that was the first thing we did. The next thing we did back in January was to prohibit my uh, assistant district attorneys from ever seeking cash bail. We ended cash bail as far as our office is concerned. Wow. So those yeah. are two things that like really actually make a concrete difference, right? People's Huge, lives. right? Huge. Because you think about how many parents get arrested and how many then you create this intergenerational cycle of incarceration. So many of the kids that I grew up visiting in the criminal justice system, visiting, you know, our parents together uh, in prison are now incarcerated themselves. And right. if we could have found a better way to intervene when their parents got arrested, a better way to give their parents the skills and the support and the incentives to really be good parents, we might have broken that cycle. We might have prevented a crime from being committed. Um, and with regard to bail, look, it's you know, I'm, I'm sure many people watching are familiar with how evil and discriminatory it is. But let's just be really clear. Money bail is a system that allows wealthy people to buy their freedom no matter how dangerous they are. While poor people, no matter how low risk, no matter how wrongly accused, languish behind bars and usually forces people to waive their rights and, and plead guilty even if they're innocent. Now we have a system in San Francisco, I'm proud to say, that doesn't rely on wealth to determine who's incarcerated, but rather risk. Um, and I'm hoping the rest of the state and country will follow our lead. But that's just what we did in January, Katie. We've been busy since then, too. Um, in response to COVID, we cut the county jail population by nearly 50% so that our jail medical director could create social distancing and uh, quarantine people who test positive coming into the jail. Um, and we did it all in a context where crime is actually falling. So it's, it's pretty amazing to see you know, people who say, oh, well, if you let these folks out of jail, crime is going to go up. And in fact, what we saw is the opposite, that when we work with San Francisco's pretrial diversion project, when we work with our other reentry partners like the Young Women's Freedom Center, we're actually able to find people who shouldn't have been in jail in the first place. Uh, we found a woman with a high risk pregnancy, no criminal history, serving time on a misdemeanor. It's unacceptable. There's no reason in our society where we would possibly say that's in the interest of public safety to put her unborn child in a context where COVID is spreading through jails and prisons across the country. Why would we put someone like that with a high risk pregnancy behind bars for a misdemeanor? So we're, we're doing better um, around incarceration rates. And in the wake of George Floyd's murder, we've also taken a number of steps to increase transparency, accountability, uh, and racial justice within our office and with regard to the police department that we work with in San Francisco. Can you define um, cash bail just so everyone is on the same page um, and also define the pre, uh, explain what you mean by pre-trial diversion? 
for programs? sure. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Katie. Um, so cash bail is a system that's really unique to the United States and the Philippines. Um, those are the two countries in the world that have a for-profit cash bail system. And basically the way it works in California, for example, it's pretty similar in most places, is let's say you get arrested uh, for burglary. The police take you to jail and they tell the sheriff who runs the county jail, this person was arrested for burglary. And the, the, each county has a list, uh, which is called a schedule, a, a bail schedule. But it's basically a list of charges on the one side and um, price tags on the other. So burglary in San Francisco might be $25,000 or it might be $50,000, right? Depending on the county you're in. And if you can pay that $25,000 or $50,000, then you get out of jail immediately. No questions asked. You may have to come back to court to face charges, but you don't need to wait in jail to be brought to court. Um, if you don't have the full amount of money, you can go to a for-profit bail bond company and you can pay them 10% or somewhere around 10% and they'll keep that money. You'll never get it back, uh, but you'll get out of jail. Now, if you don't have even that 10% or a house or a car that you can give them the title to, um, then you're stuck in jail until you go to trial or until the judge orders you released. So it's a process that really pins pretrial incarceration of people who are presumed innocent under the Constitution to their wealth rather than to anything correlated to public safety or strength of evidence or prior criminal record or anything else that good public policy would require us to consider. It allows wealthy people um, to basically never spend a day in jail. And poor people, even if they're never convicted of a crime, often fill our jails. So when I took office in San Francisco, uh, about 80 to 85 percent of the people in our jail were awaiting trial. They had not yet been convicted. Um, that's the problem we see all across the country. Is that, that enough of an explanation? Yeah, can, yeah, great. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't. When did? How long have we had it? And how long has the Philippines had it? Do you know? So, I mean, so yeah. So money bail goes back um, centuries. Actually, what's unique about the United States and the Philippines is that we allow for-profit, basically insurance companies, to um, offer that sort of ten percent payment plan, and then they make a profit off of it. It's a very, very profitable industry, and. It's one that transfers wealth from poor black communities to um, international insurance companies. In San Francisco, we see that the folks who end up paying these non-refundable premiums almost all come from just a few zip codes. It's, and it's mostly black women. Um, it's mothers, it's girlfriends, it's sisters of young men who get arrested. And again, it's something that actually undermines public safety because it allows people who are really dangerous, you know, you're... Um, you know, your, your, um, you know, your Hollywood sex predator types, for example, to buy their way out of jail without regard to what they're going to do while they're out. Uh, and we've seen that in a number of high profile cases recently. While people arrested for shoplifting may languish behind bars, lose their job, lose their housing, lose custody of their kids, all before they've even been charged with a crime. Mm. And uh, pre-trial diversion? Yeah, pretrial diversion. So the way that works is basically when someone, there's a number of different systems, but when someone's arrested and, and accused of a low-level crime, uh, a lot of jurisdictions now, instead of formally charging them or formally trying to seek a conviction, allow them to earn a dismissal of the case. 
And what that looks like depends on, on the jurisdiction. In San Francisco, for example, if you're arrested and charged with, let's say, um, you know, getting into a fight with uh, someone in a bar and it's low level, you don't have a criminal record, um, nobody's injured, instead of trying to secure a conviction against you at all costs, we would give you the option of working with our pretrial diversion project, which is a nonprofit that would have you do anger management classes or community service over a period of time. And if you engage with their programming successfully, then the court would dismiss the charges against you. And in fact, we would expunge the arrest from your record. So there'd be no record that you were even arrested. It's a way to incentivize people who are really low level to engage with the kind of programming and services that give back to the community and address the root causes of what led to their arrest without racking up more uh, criminal convictions and jail time. And can you um, share a little bit about, um, you refer to your visiting your parents in jail. Can you explain to people um, who probably, who may not know your story, what your story is? Yeah, a little bit of background on my family and my upbringing. You know, I was born in New York City in 1980. And when I was about a year old, my biological parents left me at the babysitter and drove off for the day to participate in an armed robbery that had been organized by the Black Liberation Army. Their role was basically to be unarmed getaway car drivers. But the robbery went really badly wrong. And one of the security guards in this armored car was shot and killed. Another one was shot and injured. Um, and then when my parents' car was pulled over, after they had surrendered and were unarmed, um, the people in the back of the van they were driving came out shooting. Two police officers were killed. And my parents both ended up uh, getting arrested that day. They were tried separately. My father ended up with a 75-year minimum sentence. So he is still incarcerated to this day. David Gilbert, my father, has now done nearly 40 years in prison. Um, he is still incarcerated. And he's not currently eligible for parole until the year 2056. My mother, who did exactly the same thing as my father, just to give one of so many examples of the arbitrariness of our criminal justice system, um, my mother ended up with a 20-year-to-life sentence, and she served 22 years and was released right around the time I graduated from college. Uh, she's been home now uh, nearly, what, 17 years, and is doing great. Uh, but my earliest memories as a child were going into jail, going into prison to visit my parents, waiting and, in line. And part oh, of the, sorry, part of the, your father represented himself, right? Is that one that, of the... That's right. So my father represented himself, went to trial along with several co-defendants, and they were convicted of every charge. They They didn't put on a legal defense. They didn't allow lawyers to be involved in their defense. They were arguing about the Black Liberation Movement and the context in which they had committed this crime as part of an a, a effort to raise money for the Black Liberation Army. And that's what they talked about. They talked about the politics of the crime rather than the facts or the law. So they were convicted of all counts and the judge gave them the maximum sentence. About a year later, my mother was in the process of picking a jury, it was in the final stages of, of starting her trial and uh, was able to negotiate a plea deal that resulted in the 20 year to life sentence she was given. So all that happened while I was an infant. I didn't really know what was going on, but I do remember visiting my parents during this process in jail and then in prison. 
I still visit my father to this day. Um, of course, COVID makes that very hard, but visited him my whole life. And as a result, I got to see firsthand the failings of our criminal justice system. I saw how we systematically fail to support victims of crime or to invest in healing people who suffer because of crime while we throw seemingly unlimited amounts of money at punishment and at a system that processes human bodies through cages in a way that's never been done in human history before. Um, the United States leads the world in locking people up. We have 25% of the world's prisoners in this country. And for what? What does that do? Is it, does it make us safer? Does it, does it prevent crime? In fact, it makes us less safe. And, you know, I ran my campaign last year, as you remember, Katie, on a decarceral platform. I, I wanted to invest more resources in prevention and education and in healing and support for crime victims um, and, and in, in communities um, and also in alternatives to incarceration that can hold people accountable through things like restorative justice. Uh, what COVID has showed us that I didn't realize, that I didn't appreciate or talk about during my campaign is that mass incarceration also undermines public safety by making us tremendously vulnerable to epidemics and pandemics. Right. So you knew, obviously, it undermined public safety in terms of recidivism and in terms of taking away resources from the community. But right, this is a, a something that probably, I mean, had, did not cross a lot of people's minds. Um, right. I mean, it's look, I, I spent nearly 40 years of my life visiting jails and prisons. I watched both of my parents navigate the AIDS epidemic while in prison and seeing friends of theirs and people around them who had very little information about this virus, contracting it, dying of it. Both of my parents did life-saving AIDS education work in their prisons uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. But what we're seeing with COVID is, is a new and in many ways scarier reminder of, of something that's much more easy to uh, contract and transmit. Um, and that prisons and jails create the perfect conditions for spreading. You can't socially distance. You can't get access to alcohol-based hand sanitizer. You don't have access. My dad doesn't have access to a shower every day of the week. People have to share a phone with hundreds of other inmates. Um, so all of the things that people in county jails double and triple bunked, living in dormitories, um, the churn, what we talk about churn, where people coming in and out every day. In our county jail in San Francisco, for example, we have about 800 staff members, even putting aside the people who are incarcerated there. Just the staff that come in and out every day, go home to their families and communities, and then go into the jail to do their jobs. Um, sheriff's deputies, civilian staff, Department of Public Health workers, all folks who can bring the disease in or bring it out back to their families. And it's why Cook County Jail in Chicago, for example, Marion Prison in Ohio, San Quentin Prison right here in the Bay Area have all been epicenters, not just for spread of disease amongst people who are incarcerated, but also for the entire region that they're connected to. People coming in and out of the jail and prison to work and, be and because of arrests and incarceration have all been vectors for the spread of the disease. And it's why in San Francisco, I'm so proud of the fact that we came together and followed the lead of our jail medical director, who said to us early on in March, you must drastically reduce the jail population or people will die unnecessarily. And we did. We cut the jail population in a matter of weeks by more than a third and from peak to trough, nearly 50 percent. What was the process for that? You know, it, it required um, just taking a really close systematic look at every single person who was in the jail, literally every single human being. 
that's incarcerated and saying, is there something short of incarceration that can keep the public safe? Um, and in many cases, the answer was yes. People needed drug treatment. They needed housing. They needed reentry planning. Um, I told you we had a woman who was pregnant and needed somewhere to go and get prenatal care off the streets. Why was she in the first, you know, in, incarcerated in the first place? It, it required doing that work of not just accepting that jails are a necessary or inevitable response to every single kind of social transgression, but rather saying, no, this is going to be a last resort. And when we did that, we found a lot of people that shouldn't have been in jail. When is, by the way, the, when was the last time you were able to visit your dad? Um, the last time I saw him, let me just think. We speak on the phone pretty regularly, almost every week. But the last time I was able to visit him was in um, in late December. Uh, I try to visit him a few times a year, but he just got moved to a new prison. And someone said your dad must be very proud of you. Uh, and, you know, it is an interesting... I remember you saying at an event I went for you, and, uh, you know, this was not off the record, so I think it's uh, fair for me to share, right? Plus, I mentioned the last time I interviewed you. But... Um, <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, no, it's not. It's not. It's just that you're... You say, I, I asked you that during this event. I said something, asked you about how you, your parents responded, you, and you said one of the hardest things for you was actually telling your dad that you were going to run for the DZA's office. I'm wondering um, if he's, you know how how his view of that has changed. Maybe it hasn't changed. Yeah, it was a hard conversation for a lot of reasons. And I told you about that, Katie, when we spoke last. I won't, I won't repeat the whole story, but I was on a visit with him. This is now in late 2018, uh, maybe November, I think November of 2018. And we were catching up and, and talking about the world and, and family and, and all that um, as we do on our visits. And then I sort of dropped this bomb on him that like, hey, I'm getting ready to do something really different with my career. And he had a couple of guesses and didn't guess. And then when I told him, was I was it like social, run... social worker or like, <laughs> right. or uh, I don't know, professor it, of. Yeah, exactly. Carceral exactly. Kind of, studies or something. That kind of, he was like, are you going to move back to Latin America? You're right. going to, you know what? Um, and then I said, no, I actually, I'm, I'm going to run to be San Francisco's district attorney. And, you know, my dad knows me really well. I think he's proud of me. I'm his only son. Um, he knows my character. He knows my values. So. You know, it's not like he thought I was running so that I could be a tough on crime, punitive prosecutor that was going to send as many people to prison for life as possible. And yet the system is so deeply um, entrenched. The way it works is so deeply entrenched. It's so hard to change. I think, you know, I think for him in that moment, there was real anxiety and fear, both for me personally, in terms of the you know what it means to be a public figure, what it means to run for office, and the the stress and the and the sacrifices that the whole family has to make um, when you choose that path. But also, um, he knows how hard I work, and in many ways, trying to change a system like this one is is a process of throwing yourself up against a brick wall over and over again. Um, and so, I think he worried about me, what it would do to me, um, and. You know, here we are six months in and I haven't really been able to see him, but we do talk. And I think like most parents, he's probably proud. And I think he still probably worries about, you know, that I work too hard and don't don't make enough time for my wife and family and that kind of thing. And for him to be um, released would require a pardon or uh, state. Would it? it wouldn't even need to be a pardon. Um, technically, uh, just sort of point of information, a pardon is a uh, process by which a 
governor or president can say we're er erasing your conviction. Right. You were wrongfully convicted or for whatever reason clemency. we're going to erase it. Clemency. clemency. Exactly. Exactly. All he needs is clemency, which would be to convert his 75-year maximum sentence to the 40-year sentence that he served. Um, and then he'd be eligible for parole. The governor, Governor Cuomo, actually granted clemency to one of my dad's co-defendants, Judy Clark, a couple of years ago. She's been released. She's doing really well. Um, obviously, people like my dad and Judy and my mom, people who have served a really long time, who are old, my dad's in his mid-70s, um, and who have good prison records, are the lowest risk to release. They have virtually 0% recidivism rate in that category. Um, my dad has a job offer waiting for him if he does get released. So uh, he's, he is someone who the governor could very safely and easily release if there were the political will to do wow. it. So what can people do? Are there petitions? Um, what is there a we, movement? We, yeah, we did. We did actually file a petition, a, uh, a clemency petition with the governor. The governor is considering it. I don't know what that process looks like. It's not transparent or public. Uh, but, you know, we're hopeful that the governor will seriously consider it and people can certainly, you know, tweet or send letters. Um, it's one of those areas that's totally discretionary. Um, and so it really, you know, the, the governor of the state has almost total discretion to grant clemency or pardon to anybody who's been convicted currently serving time or in the past uh, in their state, the same way that the president has that power for federal convictions. Or, I mean, really, this is at the end of the day, the process right now is primarily one of creating political pressure so that the governor feels comfortable doing the right thing. Uh, it's a it's a it's a low risk thing for the governor, but obviously the police unions, um, you know, will will continue to to push back. Um, they love to see people die in prison, so that's that's just where, you know where where we're at. Um, so any any you don't you can email us if you want, but um, the main thing is if you you know want to tweet at the governor, send emails or letters to the governor about it, um, just you know help help create that space. Do you have a hashtag free David Gilbert? Um, we haven't we haven't been doing a social media campaign yet. Um, so at some point we may. We're we're hoping that we get some feedback from the governor's office that we hear that they're seriously considering it. And if and when we do, then we, we would mobilize uh, much more visibly. Just so that people know, you can probably tell this is not something Chesa came on the show to ask. You know, he didn't ask me to talk about this. I just it organically came up during this discussion. Um, but so is is there some kind of unexpected not been well teachable moment from covid in terms of finally it kind of forces the issue of releasing certain prisoners um and as you said you know a lot of people were saying have said are still saying you know if you free these people you're going to have crime you know in the streets has this have you seen it do you think this will have a lasting impact do you think this is going to be kind of a test case to show people look we can release a lot of these prisoners yeah, I hope so, Katie. It's it's hard. I think it's a little early to tell. And it's it's one of those things where and this is, you know, why my campaign was based on on a you know grassroots movement, the organizing work I've done against the war in, in Iraq and and you know other issues, immigration issues, immigrants' rights, have all been based on movement principles and, and organizing rather than you know, some belief that one person or one elected official is gonna solve our problems. I I'm not you know, I'm not someone who's going to sit back and say, oh, we've learned the lesson, therefore, surely everything will be right. I think it's up to all of us. You know, we need to make sure that that's true. Um, no question. 
that we have seen clearly the risks of mass incarceration from a public health standpoint. We have seen in this period the opportunity to decarcerate in ways that do not increase crime. So I'll give you a statistic, just drop a footnote. Since March 16th, which was the date that um, shelter in place was ordered in San Francisco, until today, crime has dropped by over 33%. That's a huge drop. And meanwhile, we've reduced the jail population by even more. So this notion, as you say, that, oh, well, if you let the people who are in jail really need to be there or else we're all going to suffer, right? That's like what we've been told by police unions and by traditional prosecutors and politicians for decades. We now have empirical demonstrable evidence that that's actually not the case. And if you invest in reentry and if you invest in prevention in communities and supporting folks coming home from jail, actually you can reduce crime by even more. Um, but the question is, will it last, right? That's your question, will it last? It's really up to us. We need people like me in district attorney's offices. We need people like all of your viewers to hold people like me accountable. And I saw in the live comments, a couple people here are in San Francisco and, and voted in my election last year. Thank you for your votes. And thank you for being engaged. It's so important at the local level. Um, even these races where you haven't heard of the candidates, you're not even fully sure what they do. Let me tell you something. Our efforts around police reform, around police accountability, around criminal justice reform, around budget equity, around racial justice, those are issues where, especially with the person we have occupying the White House today, the local elected officials have a tremendous amount of power and a huge, really underappreciated role to play in fixing some of these historic inequities. And tell us about your new um, podcast, Chasing Justice. Yeah, so it's really exciting. Um, I'm new to the podcast world. I've been on your, you know, I've been interviewed by you before, which is fun. But just a few weeks ago, together with someone in my office, also a former public defender named Rachel Marshall, we launched a podcast that allows us to talk about the issues we're working on in the San Francisco DA's office, but also to bring uh, amazing guests on the show and talk about broader uh, social, political issues, policy issues, and help provide, uh, you know, a forum for people who are interested in criminal justice reform and social justice to learn about cutting edge issues. Uh, Our first episode had Professor James Foreman, who wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Locking Up Our Own, uh, about the role that the black middle class and political uh, class played in uh, the, the mass incarceration policies of the 80s and 90s. Our second guest was Professor Angela Davis, uh, civil rights icon. And then our most recent guest we had on last week was state's attorney Kim Fox, who is also a progressive decarceral prosecutor and, and friend uh, who runs the Cook County Chicago uh, DA's office. And uh, we're going to have a lot of uh, really exciting guests coming up uh, talking about policy issues in our office and beyond. And it's called Chasing Justice. Chasing Justice, exactly. You can get it on iTunes, Stitcher, all that stuff. We've got a website, chasingjustice.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram. Definitely follow us, get involved. And, um, you know, we'd love to, to get questions from people and, and also suggestions for what other guests we should have on. Maybe we should have the very own, your very own Katie Helper on one day. Yeah, I could, you know, I could, I could just be the, you know, lawyers are sometimes very bad. If you're not, but a lot, lots of times, law- <laughs> I've noticed this whenever I'm writing, a, when I've written about a case, like lawyers are not very good at sometimes at writing for non-lawyers. And then what happens is one journalist interprets it and they like get it wrong. 
And then every other journalist who is not a lawyer, who doesn't understand it, like copies that one misinterpretation. I don't mean like legal theory or philosophy. It's something very, you know, it'll be something very basic. It is a great podcast. And one of the things I heard you say with uh, Angela Davis is you were saying how much you respected her. You're like, I mean, we have our political differences. Was wondering what some of those political differences were. Um, and I know you said about yourself and you said on this episode that you are decarceral, but not abolitionist. So what does that mean? Well, so that that was the main thing in the context of that conversation that I was talking about. And, um, you know, after I said it, I don't want to spoiler alert for folks who haven't yeah. heard the pod yet. But then Angela turns around and says, well, actually, that sounds like yeah, you are an abolitionist exactly, to yeah. me. Yeah. So some of it is how you define it. And, you know, we all choose different labels, sure. right? Gender, political, whatever. Um, we all have a right to choose our own labels. Um, so... Angela is someone who's really been a pioneer in thinking about so many issues, you, you know, gender equity and, and uh, criminal justice. But in the context of that conversation, we were talking about her role in advancing the theory of prison abolition. And what I was saying is that I don't identify as a prison abolitionist, but I do believe that my job as a prosecutor, as a elected prosecutor, is to create policies that make our community safer wherever possible without relying on incarceration. And in the long term, ideally, and this I understand is a little pie in the sky, but ideally to organize myself out of a job. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Right? Like yeah. I want to live in a, I want to live in a world where we don't need prosecutors or police. That right. may not happen in my lifetime. I'm not, yeah. I'm not naive about the dangers and risks to public safety that exist. And I'm not naive about the failings, systemic failings of our government to invest in, healthy communities, healthcare, education, employment, mental illness, all those areas, addiction that we've just allowed to fester and which create the conditions for crime. We need a response to that. And today I am the response in San Francisco. Uh, but in the long run, let's start before the problem and, and prevent the problem from occurring in the first place. Uh, I know you're so busy. I just want to ask you two more questions. That's sure. okay. Sure. Um, your what does defund the police mean to you? Um, what should it mean? Uh, and also, your race was so close. And I mean, that's an example. What would, I don't remember the numbers, but it was ridiculously close. What do you think? I mean, it's a combination, I'm sure. But what do you think some of the reasons that you won were, given all the odds that uh, against you? Yeah. So. Um... Two, two big questions. Um, I know. I'm like, I'll let you go. Just, yeah. you know. Just, now you let's, know. let's talk for an hour about these things. <laughs> yeah, no big exactly. deal. No big, you know, yeah. Yeah. NBD, no NBD, yeah. Exactly. Um, so the, the defund police movement to me, so again, I think I want to distinguish between defunding and, ab and abolition. I think there are some people involved in the defund movement who identify as abolitionists, and there's other people who do not. Um, so for me, when we talk about defunding, I don't think about it as abolition. I think about defunding as how we allocate resources. So I think it's a really simple question. And it's one, ironically, that should appeal to all of the kind of, um, you know, Republicans that claim now disingenuously in many instances uh, to be fiscal conservatives. Right. I think it's it's a question of saying, OK, we have tax dollars that are precious and limited. And we need to choose every year when we do our budget, every year, constantly, we need to choose how do we invest those resources? What do we do with our tax dollars? Do we build another hospital? Do we build a better school? Do we give our teachers a raise? Or do we allow our police to militarize and buy tanks, right? I mean, those are like real choices. There's more, of course, 
But those are real choices that we as elected officials have to make every year when we do our budgets. And the defund the police movement, I take as a demand that local budget-making bodies, the Board of Supervisors or the state legislature or what have you, look seriously at ways to cut police budgets in order to invest. It's really about investment and divestment more than about defunding for me. It's about where can we spend that money? San Francisco, for example, we have about $700 million that goes every year to the police department. For for point of comparison, my office's budget is less than $70 million, so less than a tenth of what the police get. And starting salaries for police in San Francisco are more than 50% higher than starting salaries for teachers. So defund is more a question of saying, how do we allocate resources? What do we choose to invest in? And what's going to give us the best return on that investment? And I think there's a, a wide recognition that much in the way the military industrial complex at the national level for so many decades led to ever-growing, ballooning military expenditures, and neither Republican nor Democrat felt comfortable critically examining that massive expenditure and saying, well, maybe we can actually be more efficient with this money. The same thing has happened at the local level with policing. Is it, The budgets just grow and grow and grow and grow every year without any real accountability for how that money is being spent or what the return on that investment is. Um, your second question was about the 2019, November 2019 DA race when I won. And um, it was a very close race. So for context, San Francisco uses um, something called ranked choice voting, which if people are not familiar, um, is a system that allows every voter to put their first choice, second choice, third choice, and on down as many candidates as exist. And it's confusing to many folks, but the basic premise, I'll give you an example of where it would have made a big difference in American history. Let's say that we use that system at the for, for presidential elections. And let's say that in 2000, the year that um, Gore lost to George W., voters in the state of Florida, right, lost, right, but voters in the state of Florida, it, or the election was stolen or decided by the Supreme Court or, right, but we all know that had a few hundred extra votes in Florida gone to Al Gore, that he would, had they not been stolen, he would have, he would have then technically won Florida, which would have given him the whole country, the Electoral College. Many people that year in Florida voted for Ralph Nader, the Green Party candidate. And they did that in broad terms because they didn't like Al Gore and they didn't like George W. But almost all of those people were more aligned with Gore than with Bush. They, they maybe didn't want to vote for Gore and they wanted their vote to be a protest vote against their you know, issues with the Democratic Party or with, with Al Gore personally as a candidate. Um, but in a ranked choice voting system, everybody could have voted for Ralph Nader as their first choice and then put their second choice as Al Gore. And once Ralph Nader gets eliminated, once he doesn't have enough votes to be in the top, uh, top two, all of his ballots then get reallocated to the second choice vote on them. Um, it, it allows, in some ways, a more truly democratic process because it empowers voters to put their real first choice, even if it's a candidate who has no prospect of winning. Um, in our race, the um, first round of votes, there were four candidates. I was in, in the lead uh, amongst the four after the first round of voting. Um, 
and I was about 9,000 votes ahead of the nearest competitor in, in a race where there was a total of 206,000 votes cast. So a pretty small margin. Um, after the second round, when the first candidate, the, the least vote-getting candidate had been eliminated, I was still in the lead by uh, about six or 7,000 votes. And then after the third least vote-getting candidate was eliminated, it was down to the top two, I won by about 2,500 votes or a little over 1% of the remaining votes. So it was a very close race, and it was one that we, we couldn't have succeeded in but for a tremendous grassroots movement. Um, the energy, the volunteers, the phone banking, the door knocking – uh, all of it was really spectacular. It was in many ways unprecedented for a local race like this. And it's the same movement that got me elected that has fed into and been part of this broader national Black Lives Matter movement and movement demanding police transparency, accountability and criminal justice reform. And I'm so humbled to have a seat at the table to be in a position in this critical, pivotal moment in American history to try to implement changes and set examples for other offices and other jurisdictions about some of the concrete things we can do at the local level to really change the game and put the justice back in the system. And anyone you are endorsing? Um, lots of people I'm endorsing, depending on you know the, 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 the race. I'm not sure which one you're looking Let, at. Uh, let's see, Shahid Buttar? Uh, haven't endorsed him, but he's a good friend. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of his, really smart guy. I've uh, done a lot of campaigning with him, side by side with him. I have not endorsed in that race, but um, really excited. If you're not familiar with him, you should check him out. He's um, challenging Nancy Pelosi from the left. He's really smart, um, really, um, you know, different than than your typical, yeah. uh, you know, U.S. congressperson and someone who's, uh, again, like like my campaign, running a grassroots campaign, rooted in community, um, you know, broad, intellectual hardworking, um, you know, people's candidates. So he's definitely someone to check lawyer, out. I'm excited lawyer. about him. Lawyer. Yeah. Stanford lawyer. Well, you know, got, got the fancy degree, but yeah. didn't, didn't let that go to his head. Right. Like someone else I know <laughs> who went to a small, small law school in uh, Connecticut. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. got I got to ask the question. I don't like doing this. I'm very assertive, but not with my guests, but why not endorse him? Um, you know, it's just local politics. I right. mean, it, it's it's an option. I mean, I've been out there campaigning with him. I've spoken at his campaign events. Yeah. And matter of fact, get this, the mojo, you guys are going to laugh, but the mojo is like right there. So my campaign headquarters, the, the physical office that we use for our campaign is now his campaign headquarters, literally right. the same right. office space. So it's, you know, it's all family. Yeah. Yeah. So you haven't endorsed him. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to make sure people know about what's happening? I definitely um, want to uh, recommend your podcast. Also, ask Angela if she regrets at all not endorsing Bernie Sanders now that we have Joe <laughs> Biden as the uh, nominee. Wonder I, how I, her I carceral will, will feminism her. racks up that. Yeah, please. And, have, and tell her we would love to have her on the show. Katie Holmes. I will. Sure. Yeah. Um, I will. And you, you, know, she was a, you know, she was a high school classmate of my mom, Kathy. Oh, okay. That's how I know her. So we go, we go way back. Right. And Chase and I go way back. Um, summer summer camp. Yeah, Camp Kinderland. Well, it's great to see you. Yeah, great to see you, Katie. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so have, much for have, coming have on. Have me back anytime. Keep, yeah, keep, definitely. Keep yeah. rabble rousing. Yeah. I want you to keep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll keep push. I'll keep pushing you to uh, endorse um, Shahid. 
I'm yeah, gonna, like I said, yeah. like like I said, he's my yeah. guy. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I actually I had a conversation with him really early uh, before I had even announced my campaign. He was one of the the first people I spoke to about my decision to run for DA. So a lot of respect for him. Really excited about what he's been able to accomplish. Um, and you know, people should definitely support him. He's yeah. great. Great. Thank you so, so much, Jason. Thank you. Talk to you all soon. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of my chat with Ali Abunima, as well as a very dynamic and spirited debate between Ali Abunima and historian Matt Karp, who also happened to sign the letter, go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordoba. 